You're listening to a podcast of New Covenant Church. Join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in Pompano. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you all this morning as we open up God's Word together. But as you can see from that video, I'd be remiss if I didn't take a second to say God is powerfully on the move in South Florida. And this church, this pastor, this community is such a powerful piece of that story, such a powerful part of that story. Because I think in the first time in our community's history, we're seeing church after church after church come together to put down their ego and to put down their logo and to unify around the things that actually matters, the cause of Christ here in this region. There's a divine discontentment that is growing in South Florida around this idea that we're in competition with one another. We want to come together and view each other as co-laborers, essential part of God's kingdom. And I'm so grateful for this church and its contribution in that story. So you have a lot to be encouraged by. So give yourselves a round of applause. You see, though, this idea of unity is a really popular idea, right? Every politician for the last 30 years has run on this this notion that we're going to unify a deeply divided nation. We all love this idea of unity. We heard President Biden in his State of the Union address just last week appeal to unity. We love this idea of unity. Queen Latifah, in her 1993 hit song, U-N-I-T-Y, sang about it. Yeah, I'm embarrassed. I love that song. Sorry. I'm a child of the 90s, guys. Come on. Like, there's some great music in there. So she's saying about this idea of unity. We saw Rodney King, after he recovered from his horrific police beatings, we saw him address the nation and appeal to the rioters in L.A., asking this one question that went viral throughout the nation. Why can't we all just get along? We like this idea, but we wonder why we can't just get along After World War II, 51 countries came together to form an organization called the United Nations. They knew something. They said, listen, if we don't want to see this happen again, we have to unite with one another. We have to be known more for what we are for rather than what we are against. So these 51 nations came together to focus on human rights, to focus on social good, and they understood something. They understood that there is power in a united front. They understood that there is power in unity. Look at what's happening in the news right now. Let's look at what's happening in NATO as countries from across the West are rallying their leaders, rallying their people to try to unify against the common aggressor, against the common enemy as we try to stop this unjust war in Ukraine. There is a unified sense of we have to stop this, but to stop this is beyond any one nation, beyond any one leader, or beyond anyone's ego or logo, if I could put it that way. We understand that there is power in unity. You see, from politics to hip-hop, we love this idea. Everyone is asking the question, why can we all not just get along? And that's a question I wish I could tell you that the church has an answer to. I wish I could tell you that the local church has an answer to that question. However, we all know too well that churches in our community are deeply divided. The churches of our community have become a place where we're known more for what we are against rather than what we are for. It seems that we are as divided as ever as the people of God. We're divided by mutual suspicion of one another, 
We're divided by race. We're divided by politics. We're divided by gender. And you can keep filling in those blanks. We are just a divided people in the church. But this morning, I didn't come to talk about politics. I certainly didn't come to talk about hip hop. This morning, we've come to open up the scriptures together and explain why the unity of the church why the unity of God's people, the way that we speak of, with one another, the way that we relate and interact with one another, why is this idea of unity in God's people perhaps one of the greatest apologetics to the Christian faith that we can offer to our lost friends, neighbors, co-workers, and cities? And if you're okay with it, we're going to have a bit of an honest family conversation. If you're, uh, if you're new to church this morning, if you're just checking church out, you're going to get to see some of the ugly behind the scenes. We don't have it all together. We're, we're, we're broken. Can I just say, we're, we're kind of a mess, but we like being a mess together. And this morning, we're going to have a bit of a family conversation about who we are and who we belong to. And I want us to picture this family conversation together here in this sanctuary, here in this living room of sorts. And let's talk about who's going to be around the table. We're going to have... Our crazy uncle. I have a crazy uncle. We all have crazy uncles. Okay? We're going to have our crazy uncle. We're going to have our distant cousins. We're going to have our uh, conservative mom, our mask-wearing dad, our Fox News-watching grandma, our MSNBC-loving Morning Joe fan. We're going to have the climate change advocate niece, and we're going to have the fake news-loving nephew all around the table as the people of God because all of these different people claim Jesus in their lives. They claim to follow Jesus. So, guys, if we're okay, are we okay having a little family conversation today? All right, let's have a little family conversation. You see, as we gather today in this sanctuary, in this living room, we're going to be reminded about our family name. We're going to be reminded about our family legacy, our history, our calling. We're going to be reminded about who we really are who we belong to, and what that means for us together as the people of God as we leave here this morning, what it means for South Florida as we leave here this morning. And enter now the Apostle Paul in our family conversation, inspired by the Holy Spirit, having written this letter to the church in Ephesus. He's, he's addressing the, the, the people in Ephesus, and he's writing this letter, but he's writing this letter from a strange location. He's writing this letter from a prison cell. And i got to be honest with you, I just have to confess something. If I ever found myself in jail and had the opportunity to write my church, I would not be writing pleading for unity. I would not be writing about deep theological truths and the implications of the faith. I'd be writing for bail money. I would be writing my people saying, please do whatever you can, call whoever you need to call, just get me out of here. But no, we find this old, wise apostle speaking from a prison cell where he's been arrested for spreading the work about who Jesus is, spreading the work of the gospel to fellow Christians and those who would gather in the name of Christ in his day. And he's sharing a bit of his heart with us. He's sharing about the things that he wants them to know that deeply matter to him as he's gone around from church to church to church, working with them and talking with them about who God is and about what he's done and who they now are in light of that. And right off the bat, I want us to look at, Paul is not addressing in this letter the New Covenant Church of Pompano. He's not addressing the Christ Fellowship Church of West Palm Beach. He's not addressing the First Baptist Church of Weston. He is not addressing Christ Fellowship in Miami. He's not addressing Christ Journey Church. He is addressing the church 
He is addressing the people of God who are gathering together in that region in the name of Christ. It's important that we catch this. He's writing to Democrats and he's writing to Republicans. He's writing to black Christians, white Christians, Hispanic Christians, Latino Christians, Native Americans, Pacific Islanders. He is writing to Baptists and Presbyterians, Pentecostals and Methodists, non-denominational churches and Lutherans. He's addressing the people of God who have placed their faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and seek now to follow after him. That is who Paul is addressing. And this is what he says beginning in verse 1. Let's read the scriptures together. So if you've got your Bible, make your way over to Ephesians chapter 4. If you've got your Bible app, open it up to your phone. Ephesians chapter 4, here now from verse 1. He says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves or blown here and there by the wind of every teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ." From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. So friends, if you're the note-taking type this morning, I'm going to apologize to you. I'm likely going to frustrate you. Uh, if you know anything about me, I don't really like three-point sermons. I'm not really a three-point sermon guy. You have to understand that I was educated by Christian institutions, and I've been going to church since I could walk. So I've heard a lot of three-point sermons in my life. I've given a lot of three-point sermons. And if you're anything like me, you don't remember the three points of last Sunday. You certainly don't remember them for the Sunday after that. And you're probably not going to remember the three points from today. So I'm going to spare you the guilt of that, and we're just going to go with it this morning. We're just going to have a conversation because let's trust that the power of the Holy Spirit that we just sang is alive, living, and active in this room today. Let's trust that the Holy Spirit's going to move in and through the words of Scripture to bring conviction when conviction is needed, to bring encouragement when encouragement is needed, rather than three kind of crafty points that Eddie has. Can we do that? 
All right, good. Because why? The, the Hebrews uh, 4 verse 12 tells us this about the Word of God, and this is important as we dig in today. It says that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, friends, God's Word is alive. It has power. It's living and it's active. And God's Word are the pages of Scripture that we find the root of our unity. We find why we are meant to be united. So we're going to trust in that power this morning together. But as Adam mentioned, uh, he tells me that you have been working your way through the book of Ephesians. So likely by now you've seen that the first three chapters of this book are filled with beautiful doctrine. They're filled with theology. They're filled with deep, deep, rich theological truth. You've likely seen over these last three chapters that God's rich blessing has been made known to you and I, that our hearts have been opened to understand the breadth and the depth of the knowledge of God. You've seen in these last three chapters that we have moved from death into new life together as the people of God. And now this rich truth, this, this idea of who God is and what he's done is not just reserved for the Jews, but it's now open to the Gentiles. It's for the entire world to know, come see, and experience but now at the back end of all this rich and beautiful theology in chapters 1 through 3, Paul now pivots his argument into praxis. He pivots and, and he answers the question, all right, so what? What does all this rich, deep theology mean? What's all this doctrine for? And he pivots now in chapter 4 to talk about the implications of our faith. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. We're going to look at the intersection of belief and practice of theology and practice and the implications of our faith together. And friends, um, if we can come back into this idea of having a, a family kind of meeting, a family conversation this morning, what I'm concerned is I survey a lot of the churches of South Florida, and in my role I tend to have a 30,000-foot view of the church, get to spend a lot of time at various Christ-following churches here in this region. And what I'm concerned about as I look at the church in South Florida and as I look at the churches of our nation is, as we've said, they are known more for what they are against rather than what they are for. We've created a subculture, a community of like-minded groups of people who can explain who Jesus is, they can believe in what he has done for them, but yet we can't seem to get along with people who hold different ideas about politics, different ideas about worship, about science, about baptism, about end times, just to name a few. Friends, we have produced horrible practitioners, even though they can tell you about who God is. They can answer all these theological questions. But yet we can't even get along with people that claim the name of Christ. However, we're going to see here this morning that doctrine without demonstration is dead. Doctrine without demonstration is dead. We're going to see that our behaviors follow our beliefs and that our identity, who we are in Christ, is the glue, it's the commonality that fuels the work of God in this region. It's the glue that holds us all together as we seek to see God's kingdom come and his will be done here in South Florida. And I realize just like that, we've accidentally come up with three points. See, it's in me if I can't even help it, right? Sorry. Just realize that. So Paul is opening up our, our passage this morning and he's saying, therefore, I as a prisoner of the Lord urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But friends, let's be honest. The church, capital C, churches of our region, churches of our country, we love to talk about unity. We're really good at talking about it. See, we, we've got a fantastic talk game going on. We're really good at brand management in the church. You ever notice that? We're really good at brand management. We know what to say. We know how to say it. We can argue our faith and have all of the right doctrine. But if our walk doesn't match our talk, if the watching world sees us as divided, as angry, as filled with conspiracy theories, as a people who are, are hopeless, who have, have this pessimistic view of the world, then friends, what good is that faith? That's not attractive. Is it any wonder then that only 3% of our population would go, yeah, yeah I, I believe in Jesus, but the rest, the 96, the 97% of our people don't want anything to do with it. So what then can help us? What is our hope? What can bring us together and urge us to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? You see, Paul seems to suggest here that our beliefs have something to do with our behaviors or our behaviors have something to do with our beliefs. He says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. And he's using this word walk here as a metaphor. He's talking about character. He's talking about conduct. He's using this word here, walk, as a metaphor of what it means to live out, to journey through the Christian life. And friends, I have a, after seminary, I have, a, I have a master's degree in counseling, so I, I want to talk about dissonance for a second. You see, we have always, we're hardwired to have this problem, to, to have this tension when someone's behaviors doesn't match their beliefs. In counseling, we call that cognitive dissonance, when we know something to be true, but we experience something different. And here's the thing about dissonance. When, when, when we see something that we know ought to be true, but it's not our lived experience, not actually what we see in the life of the church, let's say, here's what happens with dissonance. Dissonance, if and when it occurs, if left unchecked, leads to disillusionment, and disillusionment leads to deconstruction about who God is, about what he's done, and who you and I now are in light of that. Dissonance leads to disillusionment, and disillusionment leads to deconstruction. You see, when we interact with a leader whose character, whose backstage doesn't match their front stage gifting, charisma, or personality, we have dissonance. We go, that's not supposed to be that way. When our unsaved friends look at a deeply divided church, that's what they say. They go, it's not supposed to be that way. They know it because they bear the image of God. They have something in them that goes, I don't, I don't know what y'all believe, but I know it's not supposed to look like that. I know it's not supposed to look that way. You see, the church, the people of God, are meant to be a people who bring life, light, and hope to the watching world. Our salvation, our belief about who Jesus is in his life, death, and resurrection is not a check the box on the back of a connect card. It's not a get out of jail free card. No, no, no. Um, when we view faith this way, that's not faith at all. That's a get out of jail free card. That's a, hey, you know, what? I, I, I came to faith and now I go to church as a response. Or like, I, I'm good. I want to go to heaven when I die. And I guess to do that, I got to come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And friends, that's just not what faith is. You see, our, our salvation, our faith is meant to bring life, light, and flourishing to the world. 
Encountering Jesus, meeting this man, Jesus. This is why Paul was so passionate about this. Encountering Jesus is meant to produce love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or what Paul would say are the fruits of the Spirit in the next book over in Galatians. He understood that encountering this man, Jesus, should change who you are. It should change how you view the world. It should replace the set of lenses through which you view the world through. And now he's given us another picture of look, what does good theology, what does good doctrine, what is it meant to produce in us? And here's what he says. Look, look right from our text this morning. He's saying good theology, good doctrine produces humility. He says be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. He's saying Christians, Your beliefs, your behaviors determine and expose what you actually believe. Your behaviors follow your beliefs. Your behaviors are actually the real apologetic for what you believe. Why? Because doctrine without demonstration is dead. Doctrine without unity, doctrine without the fruits of the Spirit, without love, is nothing but, as the Scriptures would say in Corinthians, a resounding gong and clanging cymbal. Matthew 5, verse 13, reminds us that you, me, Christians, you, God's people, you, Christ ones, you, called out ones, you, Christians, it says, are the salt of the earth. But if that salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on underfoot. Good theology, good doctrine without demonstration, without life-altering, character-altering effects on our lives. It's useless. It's worthless. And frankly, it's unattractive to the watching world. You can have all the right answers. You can have all the seminary degrees. You can read the latest Christian book. You can keep up with all the latest Christian thought leaders. But if you're miserable... If you're a jerk, if you're stingy, if your front stage doesn't match your backstage, if your talk doesn't match your walk, then our unsaved friends and neighbors and coworkers are going to continue to say, I'm good. No thanks. I don't need that. It's good on paper, but no, nah, I don't need that. Friends, maybe we need in the church today, in the church in South Florida, a talk that matches our walk. We need in the church today, in the church of South Florida, a people of God whose whose lives, whose gifting, whose character matches what they believe about God, matches who they are in Christ, about what we believe about who Christ is, about what he's done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. Why? Because there is one body, one spirit, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father who is over all of us as the church in South Florida. I don't know if you caught that. It took Paul seven ones because he knows that we're we're, kind of prone to wander and forget these truths, right? It took Paul seven, one, 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 because he knew something. And if we just read that carefully, quickly, we're going to miss it. He knew that we have a shared story as the people of God. We have a shared identity. We, we are, if you are here this morning, if you've placed your life, death, and resurrection in Jesus Christ, we share a story, we share a commonality that transcends race, that transcends politics, that transcends financial status, or anything else that the world would use to divide us. What is that shared story? Friends, let's think about it. 
We've been lost, and now we've been found. We were blind, but now we can see. We are a people who have moved from death into new life together in Jesus Christ. That is our shared story. And you see, friends, no amount of ethical or moral attempts at salvation will ever cause heaven to be happier with us will never cause heaven to be happy with you. God will not love you more because you are trying to earn your salvation or prove your salvation. No, no, no. This is why Paul calls it a calling. This is a calling. This is a story that has found us, and this is a story of grace. And grace is not something that you find. Grace is a story that finds you and pursues you. And that is our shared story. That is our commonality together as the people of God. And Paul is saying now, in light of all of this, in light of this theology, in light of this shared story, in light of this shared identity, walk worthy of the calling or the grace that is found each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. That is what unites the people of God. We were dead, and now we've been made alive. We were blind, and now we see. You see, who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross and who we now are as sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords, more loved, accepted, and approved of than we could ever dare dream or imagine that is who God's people are. Sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. A people who have been granted a new name, a new story, a new identity. A people who now work with one another to demonstrate the heart and the love of God to the watching world. Christian, that is who you are, and that kind of king is who you belong to. That's why he's saying now, in light of that, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because of that story, we share the same Lord, we share the same body, we share the same hope, and we share the same faith in Jesus Christ. If we had time this morning, I'd love to go around and ask this question to each and every one of you. What are the couple first one, two, three, four words that come to your mind when you hear the word Christian? First words. Probably for many of us, they'd be pretty positive words. But Barna and Lifeway recently did a study of our unsaved friends and neighbors and asked them that same question. What are the couple words that come to mind when you hear the word Christian? And here is their top four words. Divided political agenda, judgmental, hypocritical, and unloving. That same study goes on to find that a majority of unchurched Christians, 79%, think that Christianity today is more about organized religion than of people loving God and loving others. 79%. See, the friends, I think the watching world is making it clear that God's people, the church, aren't doing too well at pursuing the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We're not doing too well at being completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. If you ever want to prove this, just just go on a church's live stream and start watching comments on Sunday morning. Guys, we're shooting our own. We're shooting our wounded. Why has the church become a place where we shoot our wounded rather than life-giving, healing places of faith, hope, and love? So what we vote differently? So what we have some different views on some insular matters? We claim Christ. We claim who he is and what he's done for us and who we now are as sons and daughters of the king. You see, to be a Christian means to be God's people 
means Christ called out ones, people who demonstrate, live out, and build his kingdom on earth. And our non-believing friends and neighbors are telling us that they see us as irrelevant, as judgmental, as hypocritical, rather than a people united, living counterculturally on mission by loving God and radically loving others around them. But let's keep this talk about our shared story, little family conversation thing going here this morning. See, I want to reiterate this, guys. To be a Christian means you were lost, and now you've been found. It means to be someone who has moved from death into new life. It means that you have moved from an enemy of God to now being a friend of God, to being a son and daughter of God through trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means to be someone, now hear this, who isn't defined by their achievements or their failures, their good works, or their reputation, but by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian changes everything because to be a Christian means I'm part of God's family. I'm part of this new body of Christ. I now have been given a new name, a new heart, a new calling, a new identity, a set of giftings, and a purpose, or what text or what our text says this morning, a measure of grace. To be a Christian means that you are a person who has been radically transformed by the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. And it means that we look to him as our Savior and as our Lord. But if he's our Savior and our Lord and we believe that our salvation is found in Christ, friends, we've got to ask the question, what is our salvation actually for? What is the church actually for? Friends, I can just tell you, since to keep it real here, keep it honest, I think for far too long that we have been looking at our salvation, our faith, and Jesus as a means of personal atonement. We've been viewing it very selfishly, like it's about me. Half our worship songs in church today are about come getting my miracle, getting my thing, getting my this, whatever. We have forgotten that it's part of our shared story. Part of who we are. It's part of who we belong to. We, we have this individualistic view of salvation and we treat it as a sort of get out of jail free card. And now in response, I just go to church every Sunday. However, God's plan and use of salvation is part of a much greater and grander and larger story. Revelation 21.5 says, behold, I am making all things new. How do you think he does that? Our salvation, our being illuminated, our eyes being open, we were blind, now we can see, is part of how we participate in God's redemption and restoration of all things. The people of God are God's plan A to bring hope, life, and healing to the watching world. And friends, I'm going to tell you a secret. He has no plan B. We are it. As broken, as messed up as it is, we are God's plan A to see transformation come to South Florida as his spirit moves in and through us, as he brings conviction, as he brings gifting, or as our text says this morning, a measure of grace. But for a bit of context, and in the spirit of keeping our little conversation going, I think Christians view culture in the outside world today too often through the lens of an us versus them mentality. We like war language, and it's weird. We think we're being invaded. It's weird. Theological scholar Amy Sherman puts it this way, and I love what she says. She says, we see the us versus them mentality of Christians play out in the church in three ways. She says, first, we put up walls and we try to fortify ourselves to shut the world out, a sort of bunker-like mentality. The second common response, she says, is domination. This approach engages with culture and condemns it. It fights against it. 
This is the culture warrior mentality. Finally, she says they're the accommodationists, and they are a response to the culture war mentality. These are the types that engage culture but completely lose their Christian identity. You see, in all these responses, she says, we have abandoned the gospel because we have forgotten that as Christians, our faith, our salvation is not just about personal renewal and transformation, but it's part of the renewal and transformation of all There's a key line in that video that you just watched. It says, we don't just need more pastors and more churches. We need hundreds of new leaders, people who see their vocation as a mission deployed into every sector of the marketplace. You see, this idea comes right out of our text this morning. It comes right out of Ephesians 4. Look with me at verse 7. The text says, to each one of us, grace has been given. Other translations would say, to each one of us, gifts have been given. Let's park here for a second. You see, a lot of people in church today would say what you and Adam do Sunday after Sunday is what, is what you guys are supposed to do. It's what being a Christian is. We come, we listen to you guys, we get our word for the week, and we move on. No, 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 no. What Adam and I do is not meant to be the Sunday morning show. What the worship team does is not meant to be the Sunday morning experience or get my word for the week or get my church on, take my selfie at church. No, no, no. Our job is to remind you who you are, who you belong to, and reorient you back to what God has called you to do in South Florida. Because as the old hymn says, my heart is prone to wander, Lord, I know it, prone to leave the God I love. We are hardwired to forget who we are as the people of God. It's just part of my sinful nature. I'm going to get in my car and someone's going to cut me off and the fruits of the Spirit aren't going to come out as much as I want them to. Thank God for grace. We'll talk about that in a second. My heart is hardwired. Your heart is hardwired to forget who you are, to forget what God has gifted and called you to be. You see, Adam and I's job, as verse 12 puts it, is this is to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And I love how Ephesians 1, 23, translated in the message, puts it. It says, The church is Christ's body through which he speaks and acts and through which and by which he fills everything with his presence. The church, God's people, you and I, are the means by which South Florida looks a little bit more like God's kingdom each and every day. You and I, Christians, if you're here this morning, you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You and I, as Christians, united together by the power of the Holy Spirit, are how our neighborhoods, our dinner tables, our workplaces, our moms' meetup groups at the park, our nursing homes, our schools will look more and more like heaven. We are God's plan A. Christ ones. Christ called out ones, Christians, are how he fills everything with his presence. Our salvation is for the life and the flourishing of the world. Our salvation is for the hope of South Florida. And friends, I feel like in this moment I have to repent a little bit and apologize on behalf of the Capital C Church or the churches of our region because we have kind of set you up to fail at understanding this. I'm brutally honest. 
We have set you up to totally abandon this fundamental truth because somehow, somewhere along the way, we have come to this belief that we need to have more and more paid staff, more and more programs, and then more programs to replace the existing programs of the church, do more stuff here in this building, and we have forgotten that you in the pews, you as the people of God, are the program of the church. The church doesn't have programs. The church has a people. And we've forgotten that. There's nothing wrong with programs. There's nothing wrong with paid staff. Let me hear you. But our job is to equip you. These programs are meant to encourage you, to deploy you out into South Florida, into your dinner tables, into your cubicles, into your mom's meetup groups at the park, into wherever life finds you carrying the presence of Christ. We've forgotten. And you and the pews are the very reason why we gather Sunday after Sunday. We're not here for the lights. We're not here for the music. We're not here for the kids' ministry or the youth groups or any other reason. We aren't here because Adam's such a good good and gifted communicator as he rightfully is. We are here because we are the people of God saved by his grace for the life and flourishing of the world. But if I could just keep going here for a second, we've so elevated the role of pastors and we've delegated ministry to the select few that we ordained to the office of pastor. And somewhere along the way, we've created this thing that scholars call the sacred and secular divide. A divide that says ministry is for the pastor and everything and everybody else plays a supportive role to that. However, the scriptures this morning would point us in a, in a different direction. Because let's look carefully at what the scripture says. It says, to some, to some, a minority, a few, to some have been given the role of apostles, teachers, prophets, and evangelists at pastors. But Christ gave us this minority group of people to what? To prepare and to equip God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So that the body of Christ can look like the body of Christ to the watching world. I love how 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this about this topic. The scriptures would say, But you, Christians, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, think about that. Take that truth in for a second. Take that truth about here in Peter and then from Ephesians this morning. It's saying that you and I together in unity are the hope of the world. It's saying that you and I together are our chosen race, our royal priesthood, God's holy possession. Once we weren't a people, once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And the way that we interact, the way that we remind ourselves of this shared story is the greatest apologetic we can offer to the watching world about who God is and about what he's done. The unity of the church is the greatest apologetic we can offer, specifically in a post-church, post-Christian environment, which we find ourselves in, in South Florida. You want to change the narrative of South Florida? You're not going to vote it in. You want to change the narrative of South Florida? There's not enough money in the world to make that happen. You want to change the narrative of South Florida? God's people got to come together, put down their differences, and display the kingdom of God in the watching world. If you're here this morning, 
and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not only are you the hope of the world, you're the hope of South Florida, you're the hope of Broward County, and you are the hope of your cubicles, of your dinner tables, and your neighborhoods. But for some reason, the sacred and secular divide in the church would say, no, 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 Eddie, you and Adam are called to ministry. I'm merely a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a plumber. I'm just an IT professional. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. I, I track with you. But my job is to make money to give it to the church and give it to missions and give it to ministries because they're actually doing the work of the kingdom and friends. That could not be further from the truth. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been called to full-time Christian ministry. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been called to full-time Christian ministry. Scripture says you have been called. I urge you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, to be reminded of the hope, to be reminded of the calling that you have. And we're not called to withdraw from the world. We're called to engage the world, to run towards the pain, to run towards the lostness, to run towards the brokenness as the people of God, to fill this community with the presence of God, with whatever vocation, with whatever giftings God has given you. He's given you your roles. He's given you your title. He's given you your giftings so that you can grow and display his kingdom. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, being completely humble and gentle, patiently bearing with one another in love. That is what God's kingdom looks like. But friends, let's be honest, that's not what the church really looks like today. You see, everything you watched in that vision video that we uh, kicked off in late 2015 will never happen, will never happen with just pastors coming together in unity. This isn't called Pastors United. This is called Church United. God's people united. It's called Church United because we share what? The same story. We share the same hope. We share the same Lord. And we have been called and equipped by God to be his hands and feet here in South Florida. You see, being a Christian, being a part of God's story, means you're part of his family, means you're part of his body, and you are part of his redemption and restoration to the world. The church, God's people, you and I are the body of Christ. We're his hands, we're his feet, we're his mouthpiece, and the ones that bear his image to our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers in cities. The church is given as a gift from God for and to the life of the world. The church, you and I, the people of God, maintains the hope of this coming redemption, this coming restoration. And we maintain that story. We maintain that hope by previewing the redemption, by previewing the restoration that is to come here and now in our neighborhoods and in our cities. And that hope that we have, the hope that the people of God carry, that hope that God has planted inside of us as believers, shines brightest and is the most attractive in unity. Our words matter. Our silence matters. Our actions matter. Our inactions matter. We are to be the hope of God scattered throughout the world for the life of of the world. The purpose of coming here to church each and every Sunday is not the bulk of what it means to be a Christian. The purpose of gathering together is to maintain this hope, to be reminded of this hope, and to reorient our hearts and our minds towards the hope that we have in Jesus and his promise to make all things new. 
We need one another. It's part of our divine design. You see, my, 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 my left hand can't function without my right hand, and my right hand can't do the things that my left arm can do, and my left leg can't do the things that my right leg can do. And if I try to cut this leg off, I'm going to hop and I'm going to fall. We are designed to be together. It's part of who we are. It's part of our divine design. We need the full body of Christ to demonstrate the hope, love, and witness of Christ to the watching world. You see, this is why, as, as Adam prayed for, this is why we can pray for Riverside, for Calvary Chapel, for Coral Ridge, for City Rev, for Rio, for whatever else Christ's following church in this region. This is why we can pray for them to double in size. This is why we aren't threatened by a new church plant down the street. This is why we view each other as, as co-laborers rather than competition. Because in the church, the church is the only institution in the world that we move from an ego system to an ecosystem. A place where it's about me to a place where it's about us. A place where I am designed for you and you are designed for me. And we need one another in order for that ecosystem to have life grow and flourish part of our divine design. To be a Christian is to be the hope of the world and to demonstrate the extraordinary things grace can do through ordinary, broken, and sinful people. Why? Because we have moved from death into new life together. That's our story. That is our shared identity. We share one Lord, one faith, one hope, and one baptism. But friends, here's some good news. God knew that we cannot achieve the unity that he has called us to do. He knew it. No matter how much power we may have, much how many financial resources we may have, no matter how much theology we read, no matter how much we want to will ourselves up to do it, we cannot just simply live in unity with one another on our own strength and on our own power. Let's think about some of the heroes in the faith in the Bible real quick. Let's think about Moses, this great giant of the faith. You see, Moses had a bit of an anger problem. Moses pastored his people with a bit of a heavy hand. You see, he struck a rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock, and that cost him some consequences. King David, this giant, this hero of the faith. You see, King David kind of had a Bill Clinton in the Oval Office style problem, and it cost him something. He, he left the throne a little bit worse than when he found it. Jeremiah was sent with some of the most articulate words and beautiful poetry that we find in Scripture along with Isaiah. But Jeremiah preached with his resignation papers in his back pocket. Isaiah, what did Isaiah say? He said, for unto us a child has been born and for unto us a son has been given and the government will be upon his shoulders. And you can see how God is beginning to woo his people through these prophets. But yet we know that Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. Hosea. Hosea was a great man, but Hosea couldn't get his wife to show up to church on Sunday, no matter how hard he tried. And what can be said about Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, and all these other great prophets, they tried to unite and call the people of God back to something greater until about in Matthew chapter 1, you can almost hear God go, enough, all right, I'm just going to do it myself. I've had it. He sent all these people, he sent prophets and judges and kings, and he says, you know what, I'm just going to become a man myself. I'm going to give these people something that they don't deserve. I'm going to become the supply of my own demand. I'm going to live the life that they were called to live. I'm going to die the death that they were called and deserve to die because of their sin, and I'm going to give them my son. 
I'm going to give them my life, and I'm going to fully live out the way that I want my people to live so that I can give them the power to do it in and through me. What God calls you to, he will enable you to do, not because of who you are, not because of what you can do, but because of who he is and what he has done for you. You see, you and I as the church are going to need this humility to live out this unity. We're going to have to understand, friends, listen to me, we're going to have to understand that I am going to offend you. You are going to offend me. But because you're a son and a daughter and because I'm a son, we have to work together. We've got to reconcile. We've got to ask for forgiveness. We have to pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's why Paul is so urgently from a jail cell writing these things. He said, I want you to, in light of who you are, in light of what God has done and accomplished for you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Because he knew that I'm frankly going to piss you off, if I could say it that way. I'm going to make you mad, and you're going to make me mad, and I'm going to read something on Facebook that I'm not going to like, and I'm going to be tempted to write you back something and argue, and I'm going to be tempted to, to talk bad about this church down the street because I don't disagree with them or I don't agree with them. Guys, we're going to offend each other, but because of who we are, because of who we belong to, we have to pursue reconciliation not once, not twice, but 70 times, seven hundreds and thousands of times because that's who we are. That's what we've been created to do. Why? Because we aren't the church all by ourselves. We aren't the church who thinks the same way, votes the same way, dresses the same way, worships the same way, reads the same people. No, no, no. We are the people of God, first and foremost. We don't do theology all by ourselves either. We don't know all there is to know about God on our own. You see, we all have different experiences, different stories, different ethnicities, and the way that we have been born and shaped and the, 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 the context in which we've been raised has caused us to place different emphasis points on doctrine, different emphasis points on theology. I went to all Christian institutions for three degrees. I went to all Christian different institutions, and I have read a lot of white dead men. And these white dead men have shaped who I am. They have shaped some beautiful theology in my life. They have shaped me in ways that I'll forever be grateful for. But friends, I need the voices of living and dead minorities to expose me to the kingdom of God. People who find different emphasis points, people who say something a little bit different than me or place a little bit of an emphasis on a different doctrinal point because they're the left hand and I'm the right hand, but we're part of the same body. We were designed for that. One body, one spirit, one hope, just as you were called to one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And friends, if I could just share my heart for a second, I would humbly submit to you that we have practiced a brand of Christianity in the West that emphasizes the soul, but it neglects the condition of the body of Christ. We emphasize the saving of the soul, but we, we neglect to ask the question, what are the implications of salvation to the rest of the world and to the rest of the body of Christ? You see, we've demonized Republican Christians. We've demonized uh, Democrat Christians, mask-wearing Christians, 
guys, we've just demonized poor Christians and rich Christians and ethnic Christians and minority Christians and female Christians or any other member of the body of Christ who doesn't think like me, read like me, vote like me, worship like me, dress like me. And it's gotten the church to where it is today. It's gotten the the church to where only 3% of our population would identify as a committed Christ follower. Why? Because our faith has become anything but attractive to the watching world. Because this type of division, this type of thinking, causes us, as our scripture says this morning, to remain as infants tossed back and forth by every clickbait article, Fox News alert, or breaking CNN article that comes our way. You see, we've allowed ourselves to be blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming rather than speaking the truth about who God is, about what he's done for us and who we are now together in light of Christ's love. So what's the hope of our unity? How are we ever going to find hope? How are we ever going to overcome these deep divisions? Well, I love what my African-American friend and pastor, Doug Logan, says. He says, I'll tell you how you and I are going to be one in the end. Because on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. There they put nails in my Jesus' hand and a spear in his side and a crown of thorns upon his head, and he died. He died until death died. He died, as this old black pastor told me, until the earth rocked and reeled like an old drunken man. But he didn't die for corporate greed or white evangelicalism. He did not die for wealthy suburbs or poor suburbs. He didn't die for black Christians or white Christians or Hispanic Christians or Asian Christians. He died for us all. He died for you and for me. He died, I love what he says here, he died to make the ground at the cross level so that when we get to see God, we'll have gone through one door, one faith, one hope, and one God. Beautiful. Beautiful theological truth and a beautiful picture of what good theology, good doctrine leads us to. As another African-American pastor, Charlie Dates, puts it, he said, he died so that we will not claim a donkey or an elephant, but because a lamb who was slain. He died so that we would have a common story, a common identity as the people of God. He died so that we have now moved from death into new life together. We were once enemies of God, and now we are friends and sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We share a common story. We share a common identity. Now we share a common purpose as these sons and daughters to come together to demonstrate the hope, the life, the witness, and the beauty of the kingdom of God to the watching world. That's the purpose of Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It's meant to be interpreted in light of all this doctrine and all this theology. And Paul goes, all of that doctrine is dead unless you understand that. All the right answers about faith, all our cunning brand management tactics, whatever we want to do, is dead. It's worthless. It's useless unless it produces life-altering, character-altering change and transformation in our lives. That will change the narrative of salvation. But the Lord also knew that my heart, as I said, is prone to wander, and I know it. It's prone to forget this. It's prone to not leave this way. And uh, there's a reason we're doing communion together as the people of God this morning. You see, Christ knew that his people are forgetful. He knew that Moses would pastor with an angry hand, that David would have a bit of a sexual problem. He knew that Jeremiah would preach with his resignation in his back pocket. He would know that Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. He would know that Hosea couldn't get his wife to come to church on Sunday. He would know the condition of my heart. 
He would know that even though I, I claim faith, I've been saved and I work towards these ends, that my life wouldn't day after day after day look like the fruits of the Spirit of God in my life. He would know that I need to be reminded about who he is and about what he has done for us. And he also knew that I would need to create space to reconcile with one another. So as Adam comes up and we begin to take this meal together, let me just implore you with two things. This meal, Christians, this bread and wine is food for the journey. This is fuel for our unity. This is where we are reminded that Christ's body was broken for us. We're reminded that his blood was shed for us. And we are reminded that this is our shame and shared story together. There's hundreds and hundreds of churches across this region who are taking communion together and they're eating the same bread and drinking the same wine, reminding themselves of the same story. And he knew that in this story, in our forgetfulness, that we would also need to be reconciled with one another. So friends, the scripture would, would, would tell you two things about communion. It would emphasize two big things. It would say first that this meal is a meal of peace. It's a meal of reconciliation. So let me ask you this. If you're a Christian and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, if there's a text message you need to send to another Christian, if there's an apology, if there's a repentance that you need to press forward in somebody or spark, as much as it depends with you, be at peace with all Christians before you come to this meal. Ask God to remind you of the ways that you have forgotten who you are. Ask God to remind you of the ways that you've forgotten who you belong to. And as you taste this wafer, as you drink this wine, would it be fuel and life for your journey? Would it, would it be grace to us as we remember what Christ has accomplished? And the second thing that the scriptures would implore us to is to not do this if you don't claim faith. It would just be, it wouldn't be genuine, it would be inconsistent. But our prayer is if you are here this morning and you want to live life this way, if you want to be part of the body of Christ, if you want to trust Christ for your life, if you want to trust his death and resurrection, if you want him to fill you with hope, that you would come and pray with me, with Adam, or one of the other leaders here, and find faith. But if you don't claim faith this morning, sit and pray. Ask God to meet you. Ask God for him to reveal who he really is and what he wants to do in your life. But friends, as Adam comes up and I pray, let's come and share a meal together that reminds us of our unity, that fuels our unity fuels who we are as the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm, I'm reminded just 24 hours before your death, we find you in the garden, we find you praying, and you are pleading for our unity. As you're praying, God, you are, you're not talking to us about things that don't matter to you. You are talking about your legacy. You knew that you are about to die, and you you're pray that we would be one just as you and your Father are one, so that the world would know and believe in you. So, Father, we come before you as your people, asking for forgiveness and asking for your help, God. With this meal that we're about to take, Lord, just give us that reminder that we need, that we all share a Christ whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us. Would this meal transcend our differences? Would it transcend our political opinions? Would it transcend our financial status, our race, or anything else the world uses to divide us? Lord, would this meal meet us anew as we go out, your people united on mission to see South Florida look more and more like